So I'm also going to be reading the scripture. So that is in, where is it? 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. So that is page 992 in the Black Bibles, I believe. So I'm going to be reading uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Uh, And it reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nick. I'm about to introduce our speaker for the day. Uh, Ryan McCammick uh, spoke here uh, last week. He is a pastor uh, at Gospel Hope in the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, my hometown. And love this brother. We took a team of deacons this past February down to Atlanta. Um, Maddie and Ken from uh, downtown and the Pascasios from Midtown and a few people from our congregation at Northwest took a vision trip to Atlanta because we so desire and aspire to be a reconciled church. And we know that we are in our infant stage of doing that. And so we wanted to look at other church models. And so that's why we took the trip to Atlanta where we had a chance to connect with Ryan and his family and had really had some good food at their home. They, they hosted us and also connected us to some other people that also hosted us in their homes during our stay in Atlanta. So I'll ask Ryan to come up and share with us a little about gospel hope as well as spring the word. Welcome, Ryan. Good morning. Am I on? No? Am I on? Yeah? Okay. Good. Good. All right. Uh, well, it's good to be back with you. How, how many of you were here last week, just so I get a sense? Okay, I didn't terrify you too much. Wonderful. It's good to have those of you back with us. For those of you that weren't, let me just give a little bit of update about Gospel Hope. So uh, Gospel Hope Church was started just about a year ago in Atlanta, Georgia. And our vision statement is simply that we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. It means a couple things for us. First of all, it means that uh, there is hope for anyone and everyone for a right relationship with God. You can be reconciled with God through the gospel. But it also goes another step further and says there is also hope for you to be reconciled horizontally in your relationships with other people through the work of Jesus. We can be united in Christ and call one another brothers and sisters. Um, And we think that's so important because, you know, if you have been a human being in the United States of America for the past couple years, you know that our country is experiencing a time of deep, deep division. Uh, We are divided politically. We are divided very much uh, racially. We are divided socioeconomically. And yet the Lord in his grace has provided us a means of being reconciled to one another through the work of Jesus. And we just firmly believe that if the church, if the church lives out that reality, that it becomes a compelling witness to the world, that there really is hope for unity. There really is hope for reconciliation. God's been very kind to us in kind of our infancy at Gospel Hope, and our congregation is probably about 
50% African-American, probably 40% white, and then 10% kind of the rest of the world, the international uh, flavor. So every week you come in and you just say, man, this is, this is wonderful. And my hope is that it gives churches like Soma hope that that can be achieved. Um, it's, as we talked about last, last week, it's not des- God's desire that every single church be radically diverse in every way. But it is God's desire that all of us have this type of posture to people that are different from us. That we have open hearts to people that differ from us in generation, differ from us socioeconomically, differ from us racially, differ from us politically. And as the church, we ought to have God's heart for all. That's kind of what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy 3 and talk about, well, how should we think about one another? How should we reflect God's heart towards one another? And I believe this is just as critical to being a church that is reconciled as this, our disposition towards the outsider. We need to have the right disposition towards the insider as well. We need to treat one another a particular way and then look at the world in a particular way. And I hope as we dive into this passage this morning, you will be encouraged by that. I, I'm sorry, we didn't put the pictures up, did we? Okay. Oh, there they are. Okay, so here's a couple pictures of Gospel Hope. This is Rod. He's one of our, uh, one of our pastors. Just a joy to work with this brother, Sorry, I'm not a very good missionary. Um, uh, this, this was just this past Sunday. We were privileged to baptize Laquivia. She is just a joy and a blessing. She's part of our community group, your equivalent of missional communities. Um, this is just some of our families after church. And you can roll the other ones. Okay, yeah, this was, where was this? Oh, that was our one-year anniversary. See, they have cupcakes. We don't give out cupcakes every Sunday. Um, and then finally, here's some people obviously united, even against uh, varying... Uh, sports fans they we unite them around not the Braves okay good all right <laughs> done with the picture sorry about that all right let's pray so we get our mind and heart focused here on the word of God this morning Lord we need you and we're just grateful for the opportunity we have to open your word once again I pray that you would help us help me um, would you grip us with the reality of your passion for your church And would you help us to reflect your heart in the way that we think about her? Lord, we need you. Come, come, let your spirit move. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The dictionary defines the word ambivalent as having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. I bring this up because I think this term captures how a great number of people feel about the church today. We're ambivalent towards the church. That is, some people have kind of this nostalgic attachment to the church because their grandma took them to Sunday school or something like that. But at the same time, they're jaded by a bad experience or the reputation of the church in the world today. Here's a few stats that kind of explain that ambivalence. Uh, Today, less than 20% of Americans will attend church uh, this weekend at all. So you are in the far, far, far minority by being here gathered this morning. 49% of Americans don't see the church as any positive impact on their communities. Ouch, that's a stick. Nearly 20% of of our population view themselves as spiritual, but not religious. That is, they love a kind of a relationship with some sort of higher power or whatever, but organized religion, that's not so much for me. 
In light of figures like this, it's not surprising that I think many in our society have kind of like, uh, I could take it or leave it attitude towards the church. You know, that's good for you and pat you on the head if you go to church on Sunday. But, you know, I don't really need the church in my life. But the fact of the matter is, is that is not at all how the Apostle Paul felt about the church. Look at verse number 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is interesting because it's kind of a total like theological nerd alert going on here. Paul has just spent the earlier part of chapter 3 writing about like how you recognize elders and what deacons are like and what their responsibility is. It's all like kind of like technical, like not super interesting stuff. And then he says, this is so important that even though I'm trying to get to you soon, if I don't get to you real soon, I'm going to write this anyway because you guys need to know how the church ought to be organized. You're like, wow, that's a little bit fanatical. Paul seems to be really, really passionate about even the little logistics and details of the church. He, he He is really committed to the church. But I want to say to you that even Paul and kind of his zeal for the church pales in comparison in how the Lord feels about his church. Just listen to a couple of these passages of scripture. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I I love that passage. It says the Lord loves his people so much that he sings over them. I mean, you gotta love something if you sing over it. Or this one, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God has great love for his people. You see, ambivalent is the farthest word from God's mind when he thinks about his church. He loves his church. He delights in his church. He is passionate about his church. Or to put it simply, the Lord does not merely tolerate his bride. He is passionate about her. And in fact, if you read the Bible, kind of the culmination of the Bible is actually a wedding. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And that wedding is between none other than Jesus and his beloved bride, the church, people, All of human history in one sense is moving towards a crescendo of the celebration of God's great love for his people. Here's the trouble. Many of us would not typically put the word passion and church in the same sentence. It's just not the way we think about church. We think about church the way we think about automatic headlights. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, automatic headlights are pretty cool, right? Like, you don't have to flip the switch or pull the knob. It's just, when it gets dark, what happens? Your headlights come on. Or if it starts raining and you flip your windshield washers on, on go the automatic headlights. A pretty innovative function. But let me ask you a question. Is anybody, like, really passionate about automatic headlights? 
Did anybody come in here this morning and like giving high fives? I'm like, last night, you guys will never believe this. We were going to the restaurant and on our way to the restaurant, it was starting to get a little dark and my headlights came on. Woo! You're like, no, no, nobody's like passionate about automatic headlights. I mean, they're nice. They're a bonus feature, but they're not critical to my driving experience. And yet, isn't that how we can sometimes think about church? It's nice. It's convenient. I like to come get my word on every, every once a week and kind of gather with people that I like. Have some delicious both lemon and lime flavored water. It's amazing. I had a couple glasses in between the service. But we're not really passionate about it. It's nice to have. It's not that we hate it. It's just not really something that is central to our life. Now, let me be clear. I can certainly understand why some people feel the way they feel about the church. I get it. Some people have been deeply hurt by the church. And if I went around this room, I'm sure there would be a good number of you who would have horror stories about things that happened to you through the church or people that hurt you. And yet, and yet, we can't be guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Why we want to affirm that people do at times have bad experiences with the church, we also want to say what the word of God says, namely that God loves the church. And if we want to honor God, we need to also give proper honor to his bride. Uh, let me give you kind of a silly illustration. Suppose um, you came up to me after the service today and said, hey, Ryan, man, I Really appreciated the messages the last couple of weeks. I'm really glad you were with us and the Lord's using that in my heart. I would say, wow, man, that, thank you so much. I appreciate the encouragement. I'm grateful to hear it. But then you went on and you said something to this effect. But I was here last Sunday and I met your wife. And bruh, there ain't nothing I like about her. I mean, she seems like a despicable human being. Uh, th th I mean, what is your problem? Why, why do you like her at all? Because she really rubs me the wrong way. And then you said, hey, I hope that doesn't affect our relationship at all. We good? We cool? I would say, no. We are the farthest thing from good and cool. My wife and I, in one sense, we're a package deal, right? You can't say, I want, I'm cool with you, but I don't like her. No, we go together. And the same thing is true of with the Lord and his bride. We can't say, God, I love you. You are awesome. You are amazing. I want you to have first place in my life. I just can't tolerate the thing that you love. No, we cannot claim to love God and hate that which he holds most dear. If we love the Lord, we must also love the church. Wrinkles and all, warts and all. We must be committed to and love his bride just as he does. Which leads me to my point today. It's simply this. We must be passionate about the church. We must be passionate about the church. We can't be ambivalent. We can't be you can take it or leave it. If we're to be a reconciled community, as Pastor Phil said, 
If we're to be a community that shows the transforming power of the gospel, first and foremost, we must be a group of people that say we love the church. We love these people. We love the leadership that God has called together. We love what you are doing in and amongst your people. So at least that raises the question in my mind, why? Why does the church matter? Why should it be important to us? And I think that's where 1 Timothy chapter 3 comes in and answers that question in at least two ways. The first reason why I think the church should matter to us is its definition. That is, we should love the church simply because of what it is. And in verse number 15, Paul lays out three very graphic and powerful descriptors of the church. Look there if you would. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You see it there? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So three ways Paul describes the church in this verse. First one is this. He describes it as the household of God. In the New Testament, the term household referred to a group of people living under one roof. In the ancient world, the term would have included more than just kind of our typical American concept of a husband, wife, two and a half kids, and a dog. It was an extended family of people. And the New Testament developed this concept and says, listen, it is one of the greatest benefits of trusting in Jesus. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, here's how Paul says it. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and notice here, and members of the household of God. In other words, when you trust in Jesus, you are welcomed into God's family. When God becomes your father, God's children become your brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful privilege. Um, one, of my, one of my kids, Peyton, is adopted. And uh, when we adopted Peyton, Peyton had a need, so to speak, for a mother and a father. He needed parents at that moment. And so Tricia and I signed the paper. And in that act, Peyton, you know, legally, before the judge, before the authorities, in that moment, Peyton became our son, and immediately now he had a mom and dad in his life. But something else also happened, right? In that moment that we signed that paper, because Peyton now had this relationship with mom and dad, he now also had a relationship with our other children. He became their brothers and sisters. This is a wonderful and amazing privilege of belonging to the, part, the family of God, the household of God. When you trust in Jesus, you actually become a child of God. I mean, stop and think about that for a moment. When we pray, we, the, other, the, the earlier service was, was like hesitant on this question. So don't hesitate. Just what comes to mind. Okay, ready? When we pray, the first word we usually speak is father. Somebody said dear. Yeah, dear God. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Right, right. Father. And that is not, that is not something to be taken lightly. That is a theologically loaded, beautiful truth. When I pray, I don't pray to the man upstairs. I don't pray to the sovereign potentate of the universe. He is that. Make no mistake. 
even pray to the creator of the world. He's that as well. But when he invites me to pray, he says, pray like this, Father, Father, when I trust in Jesus, I become a child of God. And the wonderful truth is, is that I get brothers and sisters too. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We should be passionate about the church because of what it is. It really is the family of God. We are united through the work of Jesus, both to the Lord and to our brothers and sisters. The way we say it at Gospel Hope is this. The church is not like a family. It is a family. You are not like brothers and sisters here. You are brothers and sisters here. And therefore, that should, that should impact the way that you treat one another, should it not? You know, when my kids get in a tussle, which they never do because there's pastor's kids and they're totally obedient all the time. You know, and one of the cardinal offenses in our home is like when a boy hits one of his sisters. Ooh, that is bad. And we will say something like this. You know, you get right down with them and you're like, that is your sister. And the implication is this, like, treat her like that. Treat her like that. Don't talk to your brother that way. Why do we insert that word in there? Because that word itself implies an intimate, precious relationship. And if the church is to commend the gospel to the outside world, we first thing we got to do is start behaving like a family. So what does that mean? Well, I said it was a privilege to be part of the family of God, but it's also a responsibility. The, isn't that kind of the nature of family after all? Like being a family, like you instantaneously know, like I am responsible for these people. Um, let's say, so the other day, our, our crew went to the old spaghetti factory. Okay, any fans? Yes, the Mazistra cheese. I want to like take buckets of it home with me. So we're leaving the restaurant and we're in two different vehicles. What if I hollered over to my wife, Trisha, how many kids you got? We got seven total. Okay, I know that's a lot. Everybody pick up your jaws. Okay, all right, we got seven total. What if I said, Trish, how many kids you got? She said, three. I'm like, all right, I got three too. Okay, if you're a math scholar, okay, that means we're missing one. Then what if I said, that's a pretty high percentage. Let's hit the road. Would I be winning the father of the year award? You say, it depends which child it is. No, okay, right. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't because you said, no. Being a father, being a family means you take responsibility for all of them. They are all your responsibility. Not just the ones that are being particularly obedient in that moment. Not just the ones that are wanting to cuddle on the couch. They are all your responsibility. They are your family, crazy cousins and all. What does that mean, church? It means that we need to take care of one another. It means that, that your responsibility is, is not just to ensure that you make it, to ensure that you're walking with God, but to help your brothers and sisters walk with God. When they're off the when they're when they're off the off the track, I can't think of the uh, analogy. Off the track, goodness gracious! Um, when they're off the track, whose responsibility is it to speak to them? 
yours. It's not like, well, most of us are doing pretty good. No, you go talk to them. They're your brother and sister after all. When somebody's struggling, when they've had a loss in their life, when they're hurting, whose responsibility is it to take care of that's yours? Why? Because you're family. That's what families do. We should be passionate about the church because the church is the household of God. These really are your brothers and sisters. And don't you think if we treat one another as brothers and sisters, it would say something to people who walked in here? Don't you think it would scream to the biological family members of people in this room? They're like, why are those people so good to you? Well, it's because through the gospel, we've been made family. They love me because they treat me as a brother and sister. Man, I used to, you know, we get around church folks sometimes and we say things like brother or sister. And and it just kind of rolls off our tongue. But really, it is such a precious, precious term when I could say, this person is my brother. This person is my sister. And that precious privilege was purchased by the death of Jesus. The church is not like a family. It is a family. That's why it should matter to you. Second one, though, Paul not only says that it is the household of God, it is the church of the living God. Now, 1 Timothy was written to Paul's ministry protege, Timothy, who was ministering in the town of Ephesus. If you know anything about ancient history, Ephesus, like many of the towns of the ancient world, was known for its idolatry. And in Ephesus, they had the temple of Artemis one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So if you were really a good Ephesian, a good member of the city, you no doubt participated in the worship of Ephesus and were all too familiar with the statue and the temple and the accoutrements that went along with it. But God laughs at idolatry. He says, I am not some sort of statue. The church is not the assembly of people gathered to come to some temple of some hunk of stone. It is the church, the assembly, the gathering of the living God. I can't be made out of metal. I am the Lord and I live, Isaiah 44. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it and planes it and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak or lets it grow strong and the trees of the forest... He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread and he makes God and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats meats. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and said, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, into an idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And the Lord is basically sarcastically saying, This is stupid. This idolatry is stupid. You go to the temple of Artemis to think all your friends will think better of you. No, the church is not some sort of social club gathering where you get contacts for your business. It is the church of the living God. You come to meet with me. 
When you gather with God's people, I am in their midst. It's not a club where you go to meet friends. It is an embassy where you show to the watching world that I am king, at least in this space. I am the sovereign ruler of the world in these people's lives. The church matters, brothers and sisters. It matters because we gather to worship not some sort of hunk of stone or wood that you, you, you carve into an image with one hand and then cook over with the other. How dumb. The church is the place where the living God says, come and admire me. Come and see who I am. Come and fall down on your face and worship the one who made the earth, who holds you together, who sent his son to die on the cross to rescue you from your sins. The church is not something we can just be ambivalent about. It is God, the living God's institution in the world today. Third, it is a pillar and buttress of truth. Finally, that's what Paul refers to the church as. In the days before steel joist and rebar reinforced walls, any large building had to be supported by pillars and buttresses. These supports were, they held up the structure of which they were a part. In a similar way, the church, we are to hold up the truth of God's word. That is, in what we teach and how we live, we are to consistently point out the veracity and authority of the Bible. In our culture of ever-shifting opinions, this is critically important. Currently, as people clamor for answers as a result of natural disasters and political division and immigration and racial turmoil in our country, the church ought to be the place where we speak and we live the truth in a very real sense. The way that God intends to make his truth visible in the world is what we say and how we live. Both of those. Both of those. What we say and how we live. You want to prove the Bible? You want to prove the Bible? Be a Christian. You don't really, you don't normally win people over with all your intellectual debates, right? Like, most people's problem is not intellectual. I know there's some out there. But let, let me give you an example. I was sitting in my office one time, and, um, and a, a, a brother came to me, and he had all these, like, questions about the Bible. Well, how can we be sure that, that, that God inspired it when man wrote it? And there's all these contradictions in here, and he's going on and on and on and on. And, and the more I'm sitting there, the more I'm like, he's just, like, objecting to everything right now. And I looked at him and I said, bro, who hurt you? And he went, bleh, and just started listing off all these people that had wronged him. His problem was really not intellectual. His problem, his problem was he had been hurt and he had a negative view of the people of God. The way that we really convince people of the truth of God's word is not by saying, let's have a debate. Now, there's a good and proper place for that. But the way that we primarily win people over is by 
pillorying and buttressing the truth. We hold up the truth by what we say and what we live. And there's just their authenticity about our life. That we are people of integrity. That means we say what we say and what we live actually matches up. Um, there's a great story from church history. Uh, back in the early, early church, there was a plague that hit around 165 AD. Severe plague came across the Roman Empire. The common practice at that time, pre-advancement you know, advancement in medicine and things like that, was when somebody in your family got the plague, you basically quarantined them and you left them for dead. You just, you know, leave them there, abandon the house, get out of town because they're dead. And if you care for them, you're going to die as well. So that's what most of the people in the culture did. When this plague hit, there were people abandoned all over the place. But the Christians thought, well, man, that doesn't match up with what we think the Bible teaches, actually. Like, we should be compassionate and caring and actually be willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. And we're ready to die. So you know what they did? They, they cared for their own. And what is more, these people that were abandoned, they started to care for them as well. Well, what other people didn't know is some of these plagues, if you got care, if you, if you, got, if you got attention, you didn't die. So two things happened. One is... The Christians, a lot of them survived the plague. And what is more, these unbelievers who weren't trusting in Christ saw the compassion and care of the church and they were converted to Jesus. And all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds of people started to come to know the Lord because the church, what they said and what they did actually matched up. They were the pillar and the buttress of truth, right? Man, that is what God is calling us to do. You want to win the world? Start being people of integrity. I don't mean you just honor your business contracts. I mean, that's part of it for sure. But let what you say and what you do line up. Line up. The church is supposed to be that demonstration to the world. That's why it should matter for you. Because it's one thing if you're a single person of integrity, right? But it's a whole nother thing if there's a couple hundred people who regularly gather together to hear God's word, they hear it, it impacts their life, and then they begin to change the way they live. And there's this army of people making an impact in their community, making an impact in their families, in their neighborhoods, because they are being challenged by God's word and actually doing what it says. Church matters because it is God's billboard to display the truth, what is preached in the Bible. Number two, the church should matter because of its definition. It's the household of God. It is the pillar and groundwork of truth. It is the church of the living God, but it should also matter because of its confession. Verse number 16, probably the latter half of verse 16, actually a hymn that was sung in the early church. Look at it if you would. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And here comes the hymn. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nation, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This him highlights several key elements from the life of Christ, demonstrating that the very heart of the Christian message is the person and work of Christ. You want to get down to the very center of Christianity. It is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what the church is called to confess. Chemistry is built on the periodic table. That's an incredible innovation when you stop and think about it. Music is built on a scale of seven notes. I mean, whoever thought that up, that was really creative and it was amazing and it served people for a really long time. 
The United States is built on the Constitution. I mean, really, that's somewhat incredible when you stop and think that, that our nation was founded on this document some 200 years ago. But the church, the church is built on something even greater than the periodic table or the seven notes of the music scale or the Constitution. It is built on the gospel. It is greater than all of these other institutions because its foundation, its confessional document is far more important than any periodic table or any musical scale or any constitution of the United States. It is built on the finished work of Jesus. The church matters because it is the only institution in the world built on the greatest news in the world. This is what this news is. It's summarized simply in this way. Christ died for our sins. Five little words. Christ, the sinless, eternal, second person of the Trinity, died an excruciating criminal's public execution for, in the place of, and as the only perfect sacrifice for our fallen people like you and I, sins, every type of offense against the creator and rightful sovereign of the universe that we ever have or ever will commit, Christ died for our sins. When you strip everything else away, our worship music, our ministry teams, our leaders, our groups, what unites the church is simply this. We believe. We are the people who believe and confess that Christ died for our sins. That's it. Man, this is the greatest joy. It's the greatest joy of every single person in this room that has ever trusted or would dare to hope in Jesus. It is your greatest joy. But that's not all. It is the greatest news for your neighbor and for your coworker and for your friends and for your family members that do not know Jesus. And it is the greatest hope for Indianapolis and for Atlanta, and for Sudan, and for India, and for Syria, and for Kazakhstan. It is the greatest message in the world, and that is what the church is built on. How can we not love the church when it is built on the greatest news? Without the gospel, there would be no church. But because of the gospel, the church matters deeply. Jesus illustrated it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the gospel. The gospel is worth everything. There's another parable that tells it slightly different. He said he, he found this treasure and he went and sold everything with joy. In other words, he said, I will happily lose all if I gain the gospel because the gospel is a far greater value than anything else. Brothers and sisters, we are here today because of the grace of God, we have found the pearl of great price. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, we, when we gather, we should sing joyfully the gospel together. When we give, we should give generously so that the gospel can go forward. When we serve, we should serve selflessly to model the gospel to whoever would look at us. 
when we should send, we should send some of our breast and our brightest to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And when whoever gets up in that pulpit, every time they step up in here, do not listen to them. If they do not tell you the gospel, insist, insist that every preacher and handler of God's word gets back to the fundamental reason why we are gathered together. The church's confession is simply this, Christ died for our sins. And if we move on from that, we have lost our way. The gospel is not simply the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. You never outgrow it. You never find something more useful. You never find something more innovative. You never move on from the simple message that Christ died for our sin. My hope is that in five years from now, Soma will be clinging to the message Christ died for our sins. In 10 years from now, that Soma will be clinging to the message that Christ died for our sins. In 50 years from now, let's put it in 100, when all of us are dead, we'll be clinging to the message. This church, this assembly of people will still be clinging to the message that Christ died for our sins. Because listen to this, because in 10,000 years from now, that's the only thing all of us will be clinging to. Christ died for our sins. The church matters, brothers and sisters. The church matters because the fundamental message of the church is the greatest news in the world. So, why is the church then really necessary? Let me close with one analogy that I hope will answer this question. Many of us tend to think of the church like a cruise ship. That is, we think of it as a way to escape the world and have our needs met. And that, that analogy is not like completely wrong-headed. Like, don't we come to be refreshed? I mean, is that evil? No, we, that's good. Don't we come to see people that we love and cherish? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's right. But I still think there's something fundamentally wrong with the idea of a cruise ship. Because a cruise ship is just really about me getting my needs met and everybody catering to me. I think we should think about the church as a lot more like an aircraft carrier. That is, on an aircraft carrier, you come to be trained and outfitted. Imagine yourself as a pilot of one of those planes. You're trained, you're outfitted, you're refueled, and then what happens? You're deployed. You're deployed out into the world to fulfill your mission, and you usually don't do it alone. You're sent out with your squadron to go and take the gospel to fulfill the mission that God has called you to with your brothers and sisters. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you walk out of these doors, you are heading into hostile territory. You make no mistake that that world is not a friendly place. The Bible says that it is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And that's not Jesus. It's the devil himself. He's been given authority right now in this world. But the success of your mission, the strategy for your survival are one and the same. It is the local church. 
God wants you to link arms with your band of brothers and execute his unrelenting offensive against the forces of darkness as the church is propelled into hostile enemy behind lines there. And here's the good news. That's not a fool's errand. Your mission will actually succeed. How do I know that? Because our commander-in-chief promised it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oftentimes, we think of the church as kind of like hunker down. We're kind of on the defensive, but that verse flips it. It says, no, it's them who are on the defensive. It's the church who is going on the offensive. The Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, went to the cross, rose mightily from the from the dead to ensure that his mission would succeed. The end of the battle is not in doubt. The only question is, will you participate in the Savior's triumph over the forces of evil? Will you be the church? So be passionate about the church. Be be committed to the church. Why? Because it's God's family. These are your brothers and sisters. He really is your father. It's his bride. He laid down his life because he loved her so much. It's the greatest romance of all time. It's God's billboard. Remember, it's the pillar and the buttress of truth meant to lift up the authenticity of the gospel and the authority of God's word in the world today. And your mission, if you get on board with that mission, your mission will succeed. God does not guarantee that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God does not guarantee that you will climb the corporate ladder. God does not guarantee even that your children would grow up to be the pictures of obedience that mine are. (laughs) But do you know what he does guarantee? He guarantees that he will build his church. So we should be passionate about that mission and about the bride that Jesus came to rescue from their sins. Let me give you two kind of closing points of application here. You say, okay, Ryan, I'm on board. I want to be passionate about the church. What does that look like in my life? These are just two to commend to you for you to consider carefully. Two things that you can do right now this week and try to live this out. One is commit to a church. Find a healthy church and get plugged in. Don't look for a perfect one. They don't exist. And if you join, it will no longer be perfect. If Soma is the place where you're like, you know what, I think the Lord is leading me here. Please talk to Pastor Phil. He would love to talk to you about that. Just find a church because you need to link arms with a band of brothers, right? God's not concerned so much with just individual health of the Christians any more than he was if I left one of my kids behind. God is concerned that we are hitting the tape together and none of us are above failure. None of us are above faltering. So commit to a local church that will encourage you, that will help you, that will hold you accountable, that will call you to the mission that God has in the world. Roll up your sleeves and get involved and get committed to a local church. Second, commit to the church's mission. Don't be a name on the roll. Don't say, well, this is my church, but I don't serve not plugged into a missional community. No, 
put your hand to the plow, get involved in the mission of God. You know what the, oftentimes if we come to the church expecting it to be a cruise ship and it really is an aircraft carrier, we're going to be really disappointed. Food's not going to be that good. They're going to wake you up way too early. Lots of problems. But the church is an aircraft carrier meant to deploy you. So find out what you can do. Just find a way where you can be involved in making that mission go forward. If it means you're fueling the tanks, then fuel the tanks to the glory of God, knowing that that's part of the mission of God in the world. We all have a part to play. We all are called to be engaged in God's mission. And here's the thing. If we are engaged in God's mission, unity is a result of that. So often we think we need to get on the same page before we get together on mission, I would contend to you, oftentimes, if you will get on mission, then you will automatically get on the same page. You know, I grew up playing basketball. I played in high school, played in college. I played a lot of pickup basketball in my day. I can go out on the court, not even know the guy's names that I'm playing with. And by midway through the game, we're high-fiving and giving good games on the butt. Why? Because we're on mission together. Mission creates unity, not vice versa. So if you're like, man, I, I really struggle with holding grudges against other people and, you know, that people really bother me, get on mission with them and start to see God work unity in your heart. So those would just be my simple admonitions. Commit to a local church and commit to the mission of the local church and watch what God does in your hearts and lives and in our community. Let's pray together. Lord, Remind us of what the church is. Remind us of what it took to purchase it. Remind us of your great love for your people. And I pray our hearts would be marked by that same passion. You would fill us with a zeal to see your kingdom come and your will be done. You would fill us with a heart that really deeply loves and feels a sense of responsibility for our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be like a family, that we would be a family. I pray for Soma Church. Lord, thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for the movement of the gospel in Indianapolis. And I pray that it would take deep root right here in this community. And that people would proclaim Christ, not just in word, but in action. That the church would be a billboard, a placard of the glory and authenticity of the gospel. Lord, I pray for this fellowship of believers right here that you would do something incredible in their midst. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're gonna close, I think, very appropriately.